Today's teaching has a sensitive topic warning for the topic that we're going to be discussing in Genesis 19. I mentioned this so that you can be wary of younger audiences with regard to this message, and also to reiterate that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, why? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Welcome, brothers and sisters, today to a time together in God's Word together, and let's open in prayer. Wonderful, holy God, the one who is over and above all of us and all of mankind, the good, good God, the one and only, the magnificent, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, righteous and true, faithful. And true. I invite you to speak to us today, God. May it not be my words, but Holy Spirit, may it be your words that what you want to speak to each one of us through your word, may it illuminate your word to us and the importance of your word to us so that we would know you better and understand your call to holiness your call to righteousness, and that our conceptions of this, as you would allow us to conceive it and to grasp it and to consume it and to understand it, that by it our desire for God may expound in our life. That we would see the petty things of this world as just that. Petty worthless in comparison, that our selfish human desires for whatever it is in selfishness is nothing compared to what you have in store for your children. And that we would see that you and your glory are greater than all things. 
O God, open your word to us today. Help us to understand that our desire for you would triumph in our life over all other things. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Today, if you have your Bibles with me, please open to Genesis 19. This will be our last teaching in Genesis 19, starting at verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lie with her father. He did not know when she lie down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lie with him, and he did not know when she lie down or when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let's back up to the start, verse 30. Now, Lot went up out of Zor. Interesting. Originally, one of the two angels who led Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God rained down burning sulfur and fire from heaven, from the Lord out of heaven. The angel had directed, commanded Lot to flee to the mountains, to the hills on the far side of the land in this area, to the far side out of Sodom, so that they would be protected. Interesting. Protected from the destruction that was going to come on Sodom and Gomorrah. And what is the reason that Lot leaves Zor? which is the small town that Lot petitioned the angel after the command that he could run to. And could he just flee to this nearby city? And then he would surely be protected there, even though that was not the command of the angel. Now Lot decides to leave that city and move to the hills, which is where the angel had told him to go originally. Interesting. For he was afraid to live in Zor. Apparently it was dangerous. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, And I wonder if this is something that they picked up by living in Sodom and Gomorrah, an intensely corrupt and wicked two cities. 
And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. There's not a man on earth to come and procreate with them. That is what after the manner of all the earth is. And we know this is not true. One, obviously we know it's not true because of the word of God, but the eldest daughter lied by what she said in verse 31, that there is not a man on earth to come into us. They lived only a small number of miles away from the next city and definitely the next pasture lands, the, the rural areas around that southeast southern section of the Dead Sea. They knew Abraham and his extremely large family and his descendants lived over on the west side of the Dead Sea in Hebron. So we know this was a lie. The eldest daughter also proposes both the intention to get her father drunk as well as to have sex with him without his knowledge and then encourages her younger sister to do the same with her father for the purpose of having descendants, for the purpose of procreation. Because she was impatient before the Lord, because she was selfish before the Lord, and obviously because she had sin in her heart, because all of this is outrageously sinful and distorted and decrepit and abhorrent. And what is the younger sister's response? Verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lied down or when she arose. The younger sister acquiesced to her elder sister's devious plan. She agreed, yes, let's sin against our father. Let's sin in multiple ways against her father. This plan that you have suggested, it makes me think about Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. And Hagar creates this sinful plan and brings it to her husband and says, I want you to sleep with my servant to have a child because the Lord has not given me a child. The Lord said he would give me a child. The Lord has not given me a child. Therefore, we're going to go around the plan of the Lord. And perhaps, she didn't even know for sure, perhaps there will be a child from your union with my servant, Hagar, the Egyptian, which went outside the marriage covenant before the Lord. Scripture says in the ESV that he did not know when she lied down or when she arose. And I wonder, how could he have not known? Was he completely blackout drunk? Was he so intoxicated that he was still able to do biologically what he did? That he had zero knowledge of the occurrence? Why did he drink to the point of drunkenness before his daughters? And at the point of drunkenness, why did he keep drinking to the point of blacking out? 
Was it really true that Lot did not know any of this, but Scripture says he did not? So I trust that and believe that in faith. You know, uh, often sinful ideas and propositions are prefaced by lies. Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden by twisting what God had actually said into something that God had never said. That God did not say and he never said. Satan took a very small piece of what God had said, neglecting the whole, and then he twists it to say what he wants to plant into the minds of Adam and Eve, a deception against the Lord, a deception against Adam and Eve, evil, and plant evil in their mind and in their heart and plant rebellion against Almighty God. And then Adam and Eve sinned against God. They listened to the lie. And they chose to sin against God instead of trusting what God had already said, knowing that God's word never changes. Always true. Always faithful and always true. Abraham lied that his wife was only his sister when entering Egypt in Genesis 12 which led her to being taken into Pharaoh's house and likely committing adultery with Pharaoh. How do I get that? Well, let's read that from Genesis 12. So after he took her into his house, that is Pharaoh, verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh had taken her into his house as his wife. So it's very likely, at the very least, that there was a breach of trust with Abram and Sarai. Later in Genesis 16, impatient and waiting for the Lord to bring about the promised child to Sarah, who just spoke about this, she proposed adultery for her husband to sleep with her servant, which he did and brought much strife into their house. And the child that she was wanting to be born from that sinful union still was not the child of the promise. See, God had come to Abraham, said, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations, not just the father of a nation, but a multitude of nations, so much so. They said of Abraham and Sarah, kings of peoples of the earth shall come from your line. So many through who? The child of the promise. God reiterated again, the child of the promise, the child of the promise. They propose sin. They go around God's will, around God's promise, around God's command. And then what results? Disaster. And Lot's daughter surely knew that there were other men and other sojourners in the area around the Dead Sea. They had just recently left the town of Zor, where there were other people. Also, there were the towns of Mamre and Hebron on the west side of the Dead Sea. It was absolutely a lie 
And even if the eldest daughter believed it in her mind, it was nonsensical, illogical, and not an excuse for sin or bringing harm to your family. And that is what she did. The daughter's rebellious and dark hearts in this text are frightening. And sadly, Lot himself said something completely abhorrent, and we talked about this back in chapter 19, verse 8, regarding his daughters. Nothing excuses what he said. And nothing excuses the darkness in both of his daughters' hearts in this text because of their sinful selfish desires to bear a child above all else. Think about this. Above all else, all other things. They thought it was good then and prudent to essentially force their father to drink so much wine that he could not remember anything, had no consciousness of the world in any respect, and then to take advantage of their father, which amounts to rape. Because if he did not know what happened or that it happened against his will, which the Bible is clear in verses 33 and 35, then that was what transpired. How grotesque a mind would conceive such a thing. They assaulted their father and they used him to get what they wanted from him. It's outlandish, it's disgusting, it's immoral. It's extremely of darkness, and it tells you what was in their hearts. And what was in their hearts, what was on the throne of their life, was not the Lord. It was not respect for their father. It was not self-discipline, and much like Hagar with Ishmael, the sinful union would result in a family line of pagans. What led his daughters to think in any way that this should be done? Was it that they had been so corrupted by Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual sin that was pervasive in Sodom? Was it that they had probably grew, grown up in Sodom? Because we don't have mention of the daughters before Lot settles in Sodom. And even at the time he settled there, it was a city of what is described in the word as wicked great sinners before the Lord. And then obviously we see the nature of the, the level of sin prior to the destruction of Sodom in the text? Was it that the daughters had known this culture more than any other culture, that the inputs in their life were not of God and of his holiness and God and of his glory, God and of his word, God and that it is not just knowledge about God, but the, the impetus the entire reason for the story of God is so that they would have a personal relationship with him and be utterly transformed. Because when you have a personal relationship with God, you are surrendering all rights to yourself and you are making your life now about giving God the glory, regardless of the culture you live in. Regardless of the culture you live in. And as you live in one place, your culture may continue to shift and change in what they value, much like what's happening in the United States right now. 
and cultural values may be legal in the eyes of the government in terms of what is permitted and what is not permitted, but that does not mean that God changes whatsoever. And the importance of our allegiance to God's word and to God's glory, and God does not change. God does not change, not like the shifting shadows of the cultural values and laws and norms in our societies. And the evil one is at work in that too. God is the same always, and he wants his children to be steadfast, to stand firm against the shifting tides of culture and to hold fast to him and say, God, I glory in you above all else. And that means regardless of my selfish desires, I am going to, in self-discipline, put them to death because I want to glorify you. Understanding that your timeline for what is best in my life is different than the selfish desires that I have in the timeline that I prefer for them to be in. And if Lot did not really know that he had engaged in sex with his daughters, at the least he was sinful and drinking to drunkenness. Because when a human being engages in actions which forego sobriety of mind and heart, you're capable of practically anything. And that's why the Bible speaks so much about abstaining from drunkenness or anything else which alters the mind from being sober. God wants sobriety in his children. There's warning against drunkenness, and today you correlate that with all sorts of drugs, all sorts of anything that would change your mind from being clear thinking, from having clarity, not just getting through the day, having a clear mind and a clear heart because a clear mind and a clear heart can completely grasp God's word when you read it, can completely grasp God's presence in your life and and the importance of giving God glory in your life. And when you're not sober, you cannot grasp those things. It's not only about being sober so that you do not do bad things. You can be sitting at home doing nothing all day and not being glorifying to God. Because living an obedient life unto the Lord is not just about a list of do nots. There is a countenance, there is a fortitude in us. There is an impetus in us to give God glory, to be proactive. It's not just do not do this list over here. And that's good and that's right and those are immoral, so we do abstain from those. It's also about chasing the good. Think about it this way. It's kind of like being on the phone with God all day while you go throughout your day. Say you have a a small earbud in your ear and that you're on the phone with God all day, every day. So you're taking him with you. You're in regular conversation with him. You have the opportunity to converse about the things that are happening in life. Maybe they're spiritual. Maybe they're cultural. Maybe they're physical. Maybe they're mental. Maybe they're emotional. 
Maybe there are things that have to do with your work. Maybe there are things that have to do with your family. Maybe God is leading you all along the way through your day. And when you're sober, you have the clarity to pursue these things in your relationship with God. You have the ability to pursue God during your day. To pursue him in the morning when you wake up. To pursue him as you're getting ready for work. To pursue him as you work. To pursue him when you take a break from work. To pursue him as you're driving. When you're playing with your kids. When you're interacting with your friends. To have this pursuit after God. This is it. God created us for this. God didn't save you so that you could sit on your couch and do nothing. And say, well, at least I'm not sinning against the Lord because I'm not going out and causing harm to another person and I'm not jealous of my neighbor's stuff and I'm not verbally slanderous before the Lord or before my neighbor, before my friends, before someone in the church. I'm not committing adultery. Therefore, you know, we're in the zone. No. God saved you for this dynamic personal, very personal, very personal relationship with him. And God is awake 24-7, 365, and even that quarter of a day on leap year. God is always awake, always listening, always ready to have communion with you and conversation with you and live with you and abide with you in your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. God is ready. God is waiting God is waiting for you. And he's waiting for me to walk with him. The Bible talks again and again about men who walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah was blameless before the Lord. There is this avid pursuit of God above all else. Because God is worthy, and because this is the greatest joy and fulfillment and desire met that you will ever know. Lot initially was focused. He listened intently to what the two angels had said when when they came to him at Sodom. And he defended them to the inhabitants of Sodom, that mob that had gathered outside his door. Out of compassion, he went to his sons-in-law, the two men who were to marry his daughters in Sodom. And he told them what the angels had said so that they too might escape the coming very final judgment on that city. But when it was time to leave, strangely, Lot lingered. There was a shift in him. And he dragged his feet when leaving the city with the angels. But he did leave. He did walk out and he did follow the angels out. And there's a remnant of righteousness here, which Abraham had petitioned God for, which was still aglow in Lot for God. And we saw when they left the city that Lot's wife did not have this. She disobeyed the angel, even though 
the implication was that it would be disastrous. And she looked back toward the cities, not in faith, and therefore faced God's judgment. And now we see in today's text, Lot's daughters didn't have it either. We do not see any evidence of faith with his daughters. We see the proof from their descendants and the respective children that they each had from their union with their father. The eldest had Moab, who was in the first, he was the first child in the line of the Moabites, a pagan people who became an enemy of Israel. And the younger daughter's son was Ben-Ami, who was the first in the line of the Ammonites, who were also a group at odds with Israel. It comes down to take or trust. So much in our lives, so much in our culture is about consuming. It's not about waiting, or perhaps it's about waiting for a little while, but then it's not waiting for how long God wants us to wait, and God wants his children to wait. So much is learned in waiting after the Lord. God is glorified in our waiting after the Lord. This is part of our testimony before God. How easy would it be to say to God, God, today is day one and I bring my request to you. At the end of day one, God answers that request in the way that you were bringing the request, in the positive answer for the request that you're bringing before the Lord. And therefore you say, God, I glorify in you. I glory in you. Thank you, God. And then day two, you bring a different petition. And then God answers you by the end of that day in the positive and the affirmative. And then you say, God, I glory in you. And my confidence is in these positive answers that I'm going to get to the petitions that I bring before you. And rarely that does happen. And God will answer. And if you're praying for something which he deems that he wants to grant to you at that time, that is the Lord's will and the Lord's manner to do so in the times that he chooses to do that. But there is also something to be said about waiting on the Lord and how he is richly glorified in that. Consider this. A married couple who petitions the Lord for a child. And they do not receive a positive answer to that in the first year. And they continue to wait on the Lord for this desire to have a child. And they cannot get pregnant. They cannot get pregnant. And they try again in year two. No child. And they continue to wait on the Lord in year three, year four, year five, year six, year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10. 
10 years times 365 days, still waiting on the Lord. God sees in this an unmet desire in the hearts of his children, whose confidence and hope and faith, regardless of the outcome, is in God alone. That whether God grants them the child that they are so much seeking in their heart because their passionate desire, which is a holy desire, by the way, to have a child, this is a good desire. This is a godly desire. That their desire is good. That their desire and their confidence is in the Lord, whether he grants that request or not. How richly is God glorified in that he is? Richly so. Because then that is the evidence, that is the physical testimony evidence unto the Lord that God is on the throne of your life. That your future child is not on the throne of your life. That something else or someone else is not on the throne of your life. That you're not going around the marriage union to have a child by other means. But that you're patiently waiting on the Lord regardless of the outcome because you want God to be glorified because he is on the throne of your life. And you know that your life on earth is not about you, and you know your life on earth is not about you getting what you want on this earth in this lifetime. It's not. But I think many Christians struggle with that. And perhaps they've never been told about it in that way, but your life on earth is not about you. Your life on earth, read the Bible. Your life on earth is about God and God receiving glory. Your life on earth is about you surrendering all, all desires, all parts of your life to give God glory. And God does not believe in adultery. God does not believe in incest. God does not believe in deception. That is Satan. God does not believe in jealousy. God does not believe in discord. God does not believe in hatred. God does not believe in selfishness and granting selfish desires. And there's this struggle and there's this tension on earth right now with stuff in our lives even of the good desires that we're bringing before the Lord. And we want to rush God. Let me ask you a question. Those things, and I think most of us could, could answer in five seconds the top two or three things that are always on our mind, always on our heart, the things that we want to transpire in this physical lifetime on earth. And again, they can be very good desires. They can be the desire to be married and you're single or you're divorced or you're a widow or widowed, a widower. It can be for a family and you're an orphan or you don't have, you don't have other family members. It can be for family. It can be for a best friend. 
could be for a child. These are all very good desires. And let me ask you a question. Whatever those top two or three things are in your life, think about it real quick and think about the answer to this question, how you would answer it. If God never brings this to pass in my life for the rest of my whole life on earth, however many years that is. And folks, you may have a lot of years ahead. You may have a lot of years ahead. You may have a lot of decades ahead. Would I glorify God and would I be patient in the waiting? And would I say to God, regardless of the outcome of this desire and this petition that I bring before you, most of all, I want to be obedient to you and wait faithfully before you and not sin regardless of the outcome. Because this life on earth is not about me. I think that's something that we constantly need to meditate on and consider before the Lord. Because the Lord will be glorified one way or another, and he'll either be glorified in each one of our hearts or he will not be. But he is worthy of the glory, and he's the only one who's worthy of it. Take versus trust. Both Abraham's family and Lot's family rushed to take when it came to descendants rather than trusting the Lord. We see this in today's text. These two daughters of Lot had on the throne of their lives a descendant. The possibility for a descendant, regardless of what that meant, predicated on a lie that there was no other man on earth, which I know was a lie. Again, for reasons aforementioned. So that they could engage in sin so that they could cause great harm unto their family just for the possibility of having a descendant, even if that descendant was by means of incest. And they did it with deception, which is a means of Satan. They deceived their father in getting him drunk. He was also complicit in the drunkenness aspect that he drank and consumed to drunkenness and then continued to consume. But they deceived him and they caused harm to him in the act. And it's despicable and it's absolutely ugly and it's absolutely dark and it really testifies to what was in their heart and that was very utter and complete darkness. And I don't know if his daughters came to faith later. Scripture doesn't really talk about it. But right here, there's no evidence of faith in God. And Abraham's family, we talked about this before, they rushed with Hagar for means of a descendant. They went around the will of God. They patiently waited on the Lord a number of years. Was it 12, 13 before the incident with Hagar? For the, for the line of Ishmael, I believe that was 12 years. And then Ishmael grew to the age of 13. And then the child of the promise comes. We haven't got there yet. But that would be 25 years 
after the original promise. The Bible is very authentic, very true. It is the word of God, and it is historical as well. And for the purpose of the word of God in so many respects, as 2 Timothy 3.16 testifies to, this scripture illustrates and illuminates to us something important, because that is why it's in the word of God. And one of the things that illuminates is the great spectrum opposite. For someone who would have their minds set on something completely opposed to God, we see that in this illustration here. It's very real. This is a historical fact of what happened with this family and the repercussions of that, and they had to deal with that. First daughter has Moab. Second daughter has been Ami, which goes on to populate the Moabites and then the Ammonites. And these people groups were pagan. They did not follow the God of the Bible. And this family had to deal with the fallout of that. Lot had to live with the fact that each of his daughters deceived him and harmed him physically and mentally and emotionally. When you sin, it is not a private occurrence. It's not a harmless occurrence. It is a very harmful occurrence. And depending on the sin, the harm can include more and more people, or perhaps it's relatively few. But the harm is great, and the harm is a nature of sin. What I mean by great, it is, is, it is much. Because that is a nature of sin. That is a nature of opposition to the Lord. Opposite side of the spectrum. Someone who pursues God. Someone who glorifies God and worships God. Someone who follows the angel out when the angel says that I'm going to, the Lord is going to destroy the city. The Lord sent me here to destroy the city. Someone who follows the angel out in faith. Someone who does what the angel commands because they know the angel is speaking for the Lord. So if the angel commands, up, get out, lest you be swept away, you up and get out, lest you be swept away. If the angel says, flee to the hills, then you flee to the hills. Why? Because you love the Lord above all else. Someone who loves the Lord above all else worships God. You're also affected by who you speak with the most. Someone who you carry on conversations with the most. In the past, we would say this is someone who you, you're affected by those you hang out with. But I would also say even in isolation or even if you work from home or you don't hang out with people very much, this is who you speak with the most, even if it's on the phone, even if it's online, even if it's you're texting someone on your cell phone. Or if you're praying to him, you are affected by who you speak with the most. And that's either for God, for good, or that's not. And if you speak with godly people, they are speaking about God with you. And that has an effect on you because the focus is not about you or them, it's about 
God in the conversation, see? The focus is on God. The focus is on God. Those who glorify in God focus on God. The prayer is a regular conversation with God. The prayer is a on-the-phone-all-day type of conversation with the Lord because the Lord is with you everywhere you go. And for the Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of us. He is the constant companion of the Lord in us, compelling us to do good, compelling us to pray with God, compelling us to worship God, compelling us to hold fast to the law and to the principles and to the values of the Bible. Why? Because this brings glory to God. And the Holy Spirit is all about bringing glory to God. And the Holy Spirit will encourage you to bring glory to God. And your godly friends will encourage you to bring glory to God. And then what flows out of that, it's a cup overflowing. Glory to God. He is on the throne. We can also look at our relationship with God and what each of us does in our own lives' actions. It's evidenced in, are we waiting in self-discipline? Knowing that waiting on the Lord is better than forcing that which we have been waiting for by sinning? Or do we rush the matter by sinning, by taking? Aggressors take from others. Aggressors take for themselves. Selfish people compelled by sin, compelled by aggression, compelled by force or selfishness or pride, take because they think they deserve it. They don't want to wait on someone else. They don't want to be subject to someone else. They don't want to, to surrender their lives to someone else, so they take. But whenever you take, it's not the same whatsoever as what God would have for you in the waiting. God is going to strengthen you. God is going to embolden you. God is going to affirm to you his goodness in the waiting. James 1.4, written by the brother of Jesus, says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And then verse 5 goes on to say, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask the Lord, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Why? Because someone who seeks the Lord for wisdom, that is a prayer the Lord is ready to answer. And you're already seeking the Lord for it, so you're already worshiping God in that too. The focus is on the Lord. The focus is on the Lord. The focus is not on me and what I want. Let us be self-disciplined and let us focus on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, let your people in humility before you Realize and affirm and fully know that we are nothing without you. 
Let us not forget you are the one worthy of the glory. You are the one worthy at every moment, at every second. And may we cry out to you in worship. Cry out to you. Knowing that you sustain us. That you are leading us and you are guiding us and you are actively involved in our lives and you want to be actively involved in our lives at every moment. May we not be distracted to pursue other paths in our life. To forget that the most exciting, dynamic, intense, and personal relationship and fulfillment is in that relationship with you. That you have your glory set before us, you have the kingdom set before us, and you have good set before us when we have you on the throne. There is no other. You are God alone and worthy of the glory. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 20.